0: Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome everyone. My name is Michael Mont. I hail from Sinai Hospital of Baltimore. And I can introduce my co-partner on this podcast, Muyabad Adelani, if you want to introduce yourself.
1: Sure. So my name is Muyaba Adelani. I practice in St. Louis, and I am the co-chair of August Diversity Advisory Board.
0: Okay. So thank you for listening. I want to introduce everybody to this Diversity Advisory Board. Before I start, I just want to let everybody know we've been doing these podcasts as part of Ocus and also as part of the Journal of Arphoplasty. And what we typically do is we will take some of the articles that are in Journal of Arphoplasty, we'll bunch them by topics, and then we'll do a podcast on it. It might be two topics, it might be a few. We also, if you're listening, we welcome people that want to volunteer to do these podcasts. They're tremendously educational it does promote the topics, and we've been finding by doing this a lot of people go back to those issues and they read the articles, and that's what we're about from the educational perspective. So I thank everyone from OKIS, Ken Robinson, Mike Zarski, and a lot of people that really have made this very feasible. I also want to thank from the Journal of Arphoplasty, one of the major members of our editorial board is Jamie Bellamy, who runs the Media Relations Committee, and right now there's seven or eight members. And if you are interested in these type of endeavors, they're always looking for volunteers. And I also want to give a thanks to Kim Tucker, who has been very instrumental in putting a lot of these podcasts together. So without further ado, let's talk about tonight's podcast. And just uh, as an intro, I'll give you a little rundown on what our agenda is. I want Muyabat to describe what the diversity committee for accus is, the DAB committee. And then we have, there were five articles in the Journal of Arphoplasty issue, and Muyabat maybe you'll let them know what issue that is. I don't have that memorized. We're going to summarize those articles. And then I think we want to talk about What are the major issues in diversity? What's happening with the trends over the last few years? Are things going in the right direction? And then uh, an open-ended question, which goes into a lot of different topics. What can we do about this from an educational point of view, from research, from a hospital point of view? And I'm looking forward to that discussion. Okay, so that's our intro. And without further ado, Mulyabat, if you can explain the purpose and what the diversity committee is?
1: Sure. So the diversity advisory board's primary purpose is to promote diversity and inclusion within AUKUS. And we do that by serving as a steering committee to oversee programs that provide mentorship, professional development, and engagement for all members of AUKUS. We also do that work through the work of other committees. So unlike most committees, the Diversity Advisory Board largely serves to advise other committees on how to provide an equity lens of the work that they do.
0: So how many members of the committee are there and are open to getting more members?
1: So the committee has nine members and the application process is the same as every other committee. So AUKUS has a call for committee applications once a year, typically after the annual meeting. And so we take members through that
0: every year. Okay, great. So anybody interested, certainly you can go through William Bad or myself and through Akis. And to me, this committee is so important. So let's go to the the next purpose of this podcast. We highlighted about five articles in Journal Varfoplasty that deal with diversity, and we summarize those articles and lead to our further discussion.
1: So the 38th issue this year was the diversity issue for Journal of Arthroplasty, and there are five research articles. Four of them are clinical, and one of them is about trainees. The gist of the articles, I would say, is that patients from marginalized backgrounds, whether that's racial or socioeconomic, both in the United States and Canada, do experience worse outcomes following surgery whether that's total hip or total nearthroplasty. There was also one article about trends for diversity in adult reconstruction fellowships that reported essentially a flat rate of improvement with respect to women and underrepresented minorities in our adult reconstruction fellowships.
0: For the listeners, can you just name out the first offers or maybe where these articles are from because I, um, I think there's a general, we don't have to go through each individual one because they're saying similar things, but at least let's highlight a little bit.
1: Sure. So the article about adult reconstruction fellowships, the senior author was Julius Oney at Hopkins. The clinical articles, the one of them is from the Hamilton Arthroplasty Group at McMaster in Canada. There's another one from Kaiser Permanente in San Diego. The third one is from Hospital for Special Surgery. And then the final one is from Sinai in Baltimore.
0: Okay. In fact, I think that I might be on that article. You are. That's with Dr. Dubin, whose upcoming future joint arthroplasty fellow, perhaps. He's in medical school right now Is the first offer. So it's pretty geographically diverse. We have articles from Canada and California, New York and Baltimore, so around the country. So let me just sort of ask you, I mean, I've been hearing articles like this. The first time I started hearing articles was I was a fellow in 98, 1990 with David Hungerford and Ken Krakow. And my following year, I stayed on as a partner in the following year. My two fellows were Audrey Zhao, who was the head of WIA two years ago and a great friend, and on the Journal of Arphoplasty editorial board. And my fellow, having only graduated a year before, also was Audrey and Carlos Lavernia, who many as in the Hip and the Knee Society and published that. And he right away wrote an article over 30 years ago about exactly what we are hearing. So we are hearing about the results of these four clinical articles. We've been hearing about this for 30 years it's still a message that we wanna hear, but is there anything different about this or this is just a similar message that we've been hearing for so many years and we have to do something about this?
1: Yeah, I think you know the one major thing is perhaps the methodology has changed with the advent of larger database studies as opposed to single institution studies, but the message remains the same.
0: Okay, so to me, it's there's a message, and I did read all these articles, actually, because I do edit all the articles. <laughs> but to for me to go back and realize what are they proposing in their discussion and topics like that, of what are solutions to this problem, are what I think would be very interesting for the listeners here. So let's first of all say, is there any silver lining on what you're seeing here, are things getting better over the the last five years? Do you have any of the efforts been fruitful to address some of these problems?
1: I would say no, right? I think that what we see reported are probably the same things that I've seen over the past 10 years of my practice. And typically the suggestion is that we do more research. right? But at some point we do need to ask different questions. I think for long enough, the question has been, do disparities exist in X, Y, or Z? We know that they exist. Now we need to challenge ourselves to ask different questions. To your point, ask questions about intervention, propose interventions, perhaps study interventions to try to change this trajectory.
0: And I agree. I mean, I don't need another. Maybe also it's my responsibility. I wouldn't refuse. In Journal of Arphoplasty, we had 10 or 15 more articles that point out this. Sure, I think I need to keep publishing this because I wouldn't hemp on my responsibility that I need to keep this in the forefront. People need to be aware of. And if you don't keep topics like this in the forefront, people are not going to do what you're proposing. We have no chance for that. I agree. But if we put it in the forefront, and I'll keep publishing it, them, even though they'll say, Why do you keep publishing it? They're, they're giving similar messages. We need to keep saying this. And the articles are not really replicative the way I'm sort of saying, or what you're about is saying. They are different, they are different subsets. They're pointing out different avenues. You know, there may have been an article on primary total. These, but then there are articles on revisions and showing access to care that way. Okay. So we need to ask better questions and do better studies. And hopefully maybe CMS or different groups or hospitals will listen to us, but are there suggestions? What would you think? And I mean, if you close your eyes, what are the things that we can do about these issues? It's not single issue.
1: Yeah. I think there's probably two major categories, right? Back to the research question. I think one of the challenges to asking better questions is funding, right? You have to be able to fund a study like that to do a really elegant intervention study. And oftentimes that level of innovation is is considered a little bit risky. We've been fortunate enough in AUKUS where FAIR has established a diversity grant. The first one was awarded this year to Linda Suleiman to look at
0: Linda does excellent research, and also she herself with a group has written some nice editorials for Journal of Arthroplasty, which you may want to look at.
1: Her study is called Supporting Equitable Diagnosis and Treatment of Knee Osteoarthritis, Co-Designing Digital Capture of Patient-Reported Outcomes. So we're really excited to see the results of her study, but hopefully we can continue to fund innovative studies like that that do take the risk to ask different types of questions regarding better monitoring and intervention. I think as clinicians, we also have to be willing to move beyond recognition of the problem and challenge ourselves when we are taking care of patients. I think oftentimes when we think about risk adjustment, we sometimes suggest that we know that the risk is higher, but does the risk have to be higher? Are there things that we can do on our own practices to try to mitigate those risks? The article out of Kaiser suggests strategies that include direct patient outreach for patients at risk for ED visits after surgery, as well as patients who've had previous mental health issues. So I think identifying those things within our own practices that are risk factors and then trying to intervene on an individual level is something that we all have the power to do. And I
0: thank you for those comments. My partner, Ron Delanois, has taken a, with myself, but but he has really spearheaded a lot of it for our center at the Rubin, on looking at social determinants of health. So we've looked at it in our hospital and across Maryland and with databases. I, we also did some of this work in Cleveland Clinic. And those type of studies are really important because many of you may know that half of the Results of our outcomes are due to social determinants, and that's been published in a number of times. So, if we can identify patients ahead of time, many of these negative or pre-operatively identified negative social determinants, like you said, if we can identify that ahead of time, we can influence that. Right? We don't have to just plunge in and do a joint replacement and and lead to the similar results. We can intervene we may need to do some more funding at the preoperative level to change somebody's preoperative status. I mean, it's easy to think about patients losing weight, that, that's a separate topic, and that will lower infection and other complication risks. But we have plenty of things that we can do to help social determinants of help, which is very related to what everything that we're talking about here. So thank you for bringing that up. And We can do something for risk adjustment. The other thing that bothers me is a lot, we have published a lot on showing these scenarios and that you really do need to risk adjust these patients. And I know, Muyabat, you would love to not have to risk adjust the patients because they would be equal. And we're still far away from that. But I'm happy that the government is intervening and they are now risk. They're just they're paying a little bit more to the hospitals or to the surgeons for patients that may be socioeconomically deprived. But do you think they're doing enough? I mean, I, I sort of have my own thoughts, but how do you feel about what they're doing?
1: I think it's a challenge. I would like to see more in the sense that we cannot have a system where people are disincentivized to take care of patients or to take care of select group of patients. Because it doesn't mean that the patients go away, they tend to just come to us much later in their disease process where everything then becomes even harder than it was before. So all we end up doing by disincentivizing care is magnifying all the risks that we are concerned about in the first place. So I think we definitely need to make sure that we maintain levels of risk adjustment to avoid disin- disincentivizing, taking care of certain patients.
0: And people wonder why United States are the greatest, oh, they're the greatest for medicine, but no, they are not the greatest for medicine. We are not ranked, <laughs> ranked very low on our medical care. And if you look at these ranking lists, it is because we don't take care of people in inner cities. We don't give access to people that don't have the same levels of insurance. And so the care is very unequal. And we're seeing it right here in the results of these studies. So we don't have to point that out. So anybody that thinks we're the greatest in medical care, we just have to look into what Milliabat is describing and talking about here. I think that the government or the CMS or they are now, reimbursing hospitals for complexity of the surgeries or for disadvantaged groups or people that they know have higher complication rates but i'm not impressed with you know with okay so they're going to give us 20% more rvus or or reimbursement for these types of patients it's not going to change the needle these patients are still not going to get care do you agree with that
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think for a number of reasons, that would be the case, right? So first and foremost, we're still dealing with the problem at the end of the line, when just as many of these papers state these things are socially determined. So there, a lot of these outcomes are determined before the patient even comes to the door. And the interventions also need to be there, I think the second challenge to the reimbursement model is that it requires people to care, right? Like if if the perception is that the difficulty is higher, the number has to be high enough to warrant said difficulty. And if people choose not to take that on despite the new incentives, then what do we do? Right. Like I think. We have to have a multi-pronged approach. It can't only be through reimbursement and only be at the time of surgery, but also thinking about all of the social determinants of health that are impacting the patients that we take care of as well before we even see them.
0: So it even goes beyond what I'm thinking in terms of medicine. We have to start talking. This this becomes even a societal issue. I
1: think so. I think, you know, the same social determinants that affect arthroplasty outcomes affect all the other health outcomes, right? So it's not isolated to us. And I think for the United States to consider itself to be better in terms of healthcare, we have to flip the model to think more holistically.
0: Well, we can think about it in every sense of the world. I mean, the whole society, there's an iniquity of how people get punished in our society and how people are treated across. So I still believe we're going in the right direction from the society, but it's going to take a long time to catch up. And if we don't catch up on every aspect of society, we're certainly not going to catch up in medicine. And we're not catching up in medicine, we're certainly not going to catch up in orthopedics. So we need these long, big societal things have to keep going in the correct direction. But I think we also can do some of these short-term fixes. I guess they're, they're a short-term fix. I'm going to take care of every patient. I don't really, maybe I've been institutionalized, <laughs> sort of a negative word. I've always worked at Hopkins and at at academic, Cleveland Clinic, academic institution. And part of my contracts were all, I will take care of any patient and I don't look at anything else but that. But that's, that's an ivory tower that I've been involved in and that not everybody has that ability and that they just can't survive. So it does push a lot of patients to only academic institutions who then get overloaded and scenarios like that. But I think that you can't reimburse twenty percent more for these complex patients or these patients that we know from these five, four articles are going to have freefold three hundred percent, four hundred percent higher complication rates, right? Isn't that correct with what you're finding in the articles? They're not twenty percent more readmissions to the emergency room or visits to the emergency room or readmissions. It's not twenty percent more. They are sometimes freefold. So yeah,
1: there are all, all the findings were very significant.
0: Yeah, they're tremendously significant. So we have to really do something to me. And I agree with you, that's a short-term solution. We can't fix the whole society yet. But we need that short-term solution. I mean, we have to do that in orthopedics. So what other solutions could you offer, or what would you like to see? Published or well, we you mentioned the fair grant that we're looking forward to that. But if, if we had to get a group of us to collaborate, and many of us can collaborate without a fair grant, what are some of the things that we could do together?
1: You know, I think it would be very interesting to see data from people who are are doing well at this, right? I would hope that there are some institutions, there are some groups that don't find themselves having such disparate outcomes, and if that's the case. Perhaps they can share with the rest of us what they're doing on their end that perhaps can be replicated.
0: I think that's a good point because a lot of centers really have instituted tremendous protocols. As long as it's an institution that is doing these unbelievable educational protocols, sometimes they have to do preoperative visits. They don't just do a knee no pun intended, knee-jerk reaction to just scheduling the patient. They look at their health status. They can reduce the smoking and other risk factors for these patients. That really goes a long way. So what you said is right. If we can get those institutions that are doing that process successfully and then give those algorithms or those treatment methods to other institutions, that's good. What I don't want is institutions that are doing really well, but they're excluding the patients. Right. And we know that that's occurring because we're on, I mean, I get sent the patients. (laughs) Some of the academic institutions get sent the patients and we don't want to destroy our academic institutions for that reason. So yes, there are institutions that are doing very well and they've instituted all these protocols, but they're, and I, I don't know if I should say this, but yeah, I think if you're excluding patients with a BMI, I'll, just, I'll leave it at this, BMI over 32 because you really, that's uh, not this topic totally, then of course you're going to lower your complication risk. And if you exclude certain groups, you know the example I just used to be a little more politically correct, <laughs> but if you exclude certain groups of patients, you're going to have lower complication rates. And we hope that that isn't occurring, but it does. And that's just a reality in our society. All right. So I think that I have a little bit of an insight in articles that are coming down the line, some of the work I'm involved with, but in terms of our own group at AACUS, we are moving towards diversity. And that to me, in fact, maybe explain, what was the fifth article on the fellowships? Was that describing yeah, so
1: that article looked at trends in racial, ethnic, and gender diversity in adult reconstruction fellowships from 2007 to 2021.
0: And you want to summarize, if you can do that to remind me and the, re, and the listeners here, what were the conclusions on each of those different topics? I mean, we can partition that out a little bit.
1: So the study looked at data from the ACGME, demographic data on both race and gender over that 14-year time span, and essentially found increasing representation for whites and Asians compared to Blacks and Hispanics and women. And so essentially the progress is relatively limited for those underrepresented groups in arthroplasty.
0: Yeah, and I would agree. I mean, I've collected some of this data of Drs. Zhu and Antonia Chen Brigham group through acus and I guess I shouldn't, it's a future article that we're putting together, but there's a little bit of a trend towards more women in orthoplasty, but it's not tremendous. For example, it's, when this was published, I think your number might have been the percent of women in arthroplasty would have been closer to two point six percent. And what do you think the percent now? Do you know that? I, I it's about tell. three. It's a little uh, higher now, according. Yeah,
1: from like, our census data in August, it's about three.
0: Yeah, maybe just I think for the last piece of data, it's a slightly higher than that. Maybe three point five. Big mm-hmm. deal. I mean, it doesn't, I can't actually believe that. It, it just seems to me we've been making all these efforts and we are getting uh, in medicine where there's more women than men in medicine. I mean, how we, uh, and we're getting a lot more women applying an orthopedics. I think it's something like 19% or 26%. I see numbers like that, but we haven't made major inroads in orthoplasty. and we can, that would be a whole nother podcast we could describe some of those reasons why that's occurring but i think if we continue to have mentors like like and myself we we're, we're going to get more <laughs> women in orthoplasty it's not going to just go to the other orthopedic specialties and we're going to keep increasing that so that I, orthopedics is trending much higher than god 10 or 15 years ago which so i'm i'm happy with orthopedics and and i think we're going to get there in orthoplasty in the next few years things will go up. All right. Do you have any other comments that you'd like to make? Open I end?
1: appreciate you having me on the podcast and I appreciate the Journal of Arthroplasty for doing a diversity supplement or a diversity issue, I should say, just having the forum to combine these type of articles and put a spotlight on the work that we're trying to do is tremendous. So we thank you for that.
0: Well, you're very welcome. I appreciate having you here. I'm actually honored. I would say when people listen to this, I mean, we just touched on a few topics here. People want to call in, write to William it with the diversity committee, with questions, write to me, comments, anything like that. I think if we get, get enough feedback here, I would love to do this again. We could even do this again in one year. With maybe myself, about we could invite one or two other people and then have a very structured program that specifically answers questions that 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 our listeners have. I think this this to me was a little bit more open-ended, which I enjoyed, but we can do another one of these going forward because this is an important topic. And I think we need to continue the awareness for everyone. So I thank Akus for the opportunity and and for pushing us to do this podcast. So have a great evening or it's our evening. So I shouldn't say that because everybody may be listening to this in the morning on their way to work. So thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.